Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 26, An Expert Opinion. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. I accept ownership of all thoughts and opinions in the podcast. This episode was supposed to be Game Changer discussing the blackened footprint evidence in the house. Some significant new evidence has only arrived this week, so we decided to deal with that, and Game Changer will be the subject of a future episode. I am joined again this week by Jeff Johnson, pro bono solicitor for Max Seeker. I'll let Jeff outline the new evidence he has received. And a warning, this episode contains explicit discussions regarding death. Listen with caution. Hi Jeff, welcome back. I hear you have an interesting development on the case. Good to talk to you again, Graham. Yes, I do. After our last podcast, I received an update that I was waiting for from Professor DeFlo, the independent forensic pathologist that had been employed by the Seeker family. And it dovetails nicely into the previous episodes where I've outlined for listeners serious deficiencies in the Crown case. Okay. In the episodes to date, I've explained to listeners those serious deficiencies, and they included allegations of deliberate lies that were based on what I say was false and misleading evidence, a failure to disclose crucial documents, a failure to call exculpatory evidence that disproves those allegations of deliberate lying, including police refusing to take a statement from Lisa L or producing that document, page number 47, recording her doorknock conversation. What I have not informed listeners to date of is the crucial forensic evidence that I provided to the Attorney-General with the original petition that was inexplicably dismissed as no grounds for referral. In the final address to the jury by the prosecutor, he said, These are the words of the prosecutor. There is a significant and compelling body of evidence to prove that the killings occurred between about 11.10pm on the Easter Sunday and about 7.15am next morning. This was the period when the only evidence of the accused's whereabouts 
was that of his own word, which cannot be accepted unless supported by reliable, independent evidence. Jeff, I have to say that after reviewing all the evidence, I was never persuaded that time of death was Easter Sunday night. I felt it came down to that time for the Queensland Police Service and the DPP because that was the only window of opportunity Max Seeker had to commit the murders. Yes, one might think that, Graham. As we've spoken about in previous podcasts, the evidence that Max Seeker went to the Singh household on the Sunday night was, if anything, scant. And after what we've been discussing, probably non-existent. And indeed, if the evidence had been called from those exculpatory witnesses, then the suggestion that those murders occurred on the Sunday night, or if they did that Max Seeker was involved, is to say the least questionable. In that regard, in preparing the first petition, apart from those matters that we've already discussed, I had developed concerns as to the time of death from going through the diabolical process of examining the autopsy photos and reports. That is not a task that I would wish on anyone. Over the years, I've had the unfortunate experience of having to remove several animals from water sources following drowning, flooded creeks, dams, and in one case, a swimming pool. I'm not going to go into details, but my experiences in that regard gave me some concerns when I observed the appearance of the bodies in the photographs following removal from the spa bath. Graham, there's some very important forensic evidence that I have received supporting the time of death of the siblings to be the Monday night, Tuesday morning, not the Sunday night, Monday morning, as the timeline suggested by the Crown at trial. That forensic evidence was originally produced at the time the first petition was delivered and along with so much else, dismissed by the Attorney-General as no grounds. Well, a second research paper out of Europe has doubled down on that evidence and has been dealt with by Professor Duflo in a supplementary expert report. Let me explain. In reading the evidence of the pathologist Dr. Alumbi, Dr. Alumbi was the government pathologist who gave evidence at the trial about the appearance of the bodies, the bruising to Neilma's arms, and the absence of defensive wounds, I felt that it might be productive to meet with Dr. Alumbi to discuss his reports and the evidence he gave to obtain some clarification with respect to some matters. Dr. Lumby was the pathologist appointed to perform the autopsy, so he was obviously well qualified to occupy such a position. Now, Graham, what I did at the outset was that on the 18th of December 2018, I emailed the state coroner of Queensland and requested approval to confer with Dr. Alumbi. I received that approval from the state coroner on the 9th of January 2019, and I then tried to contact Dr. Alumbi. 
I explained to his receptionist my reasons for wishing to talk to him. Uh, unfortunately, I received a curt response from her to say, Dr. Olumbi does not want to talk to you. So, plan B. A friend of mine who's a medical practitioner and who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan in the armed forces provided his time and expertise to review the autopsy reports, the photographs and the pathologist's evidence. Given his background, I found his assistance to be invaluable. Following those discussions, I then recommended to the Seeker family they engage the services of an independent forensic pathologist. They agreed. I then retained the services of an eminent consulting forensic pathologist, Professor Johan Duflo, to review the autopsy reports. Professor Duflo's qualifications and experience over many years are impressive to say the least. He commenced practice in forensic pathology in 1983 and has been registered as a full-time forensic pathologist since 1988. He has presented written and or verbal expert evidence in multiple jurisdictions, including Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, South Africa, the United States, Thailand and Singapore. In response to my requests, Professor Duflo provided a comprehensive report covering 24 pages. That report was provided with the documentation supporting the original position. I have delayed raising Professor Duflo's initial report in the podcasts that I've done with you to date because I had requested him recently to provide an update on his expert opinion. I have now received that update. Before sharing with listeners Professor Duflo's expert opinion on the likely time of death of the Sims siblings expressed in his original report of the 7th of March 2019, and in his further supplementary expert opinion dated the 8th of December 2022, let me take your listeners to some of the evidence given by Dr. Alumbi at trial. I think that will be helpful to them in understanding what I then go on to disclose about the opinions expressed by Professor DeFlo. These are the words of the prosecutor and Dr. Alumbi. I will be reading out both so that there is no confusion and I start with the prosecutor. At that time, did you make any observations as to the external, and indeed, more accurately, as to the skin condition of each of the deceased? Yes, I should say first of all that the bodies look somewhat well preserved. The prosecutor then asked about bruising to both Neilma's upper arms. Doctor, in relation to the left arm, you said there was also bruising. Did it have any particular characteristics to it? By that I mean, you've spoken of bruises on the right arm having grip characteristics. Dr. Alumbi replied, similar. They were also somewhat similar and also had a similar grip characteristic. The prosecutor, in your professional opinion, 
Is that bruise likely to have been caused by the process of removing Neelma Singh from the spa bath? He replied, certainly not. And a little later, But in my opinion, and having considered the bleeding underneath the skin, it suggests that these are fresh bruises that occurred around the time of death. I will return to the grip bruises a little later, Graham. Dr. Alumbi and evidence also referred to a plume of froth coming out of canals, nostrils and mouth. And for the purpose of what comes later, I also provide some extracts with respect to the evidence given by Dr. Alumbi from the trial transcript. These are the words of Dr. Alumbi. Now, in addition to the skin slippage, the wrinkling of the skin of the hands, the body that had been submerged completely underneath these two other bodies was that of the boy Connell, who had a lot of plume or froth coming out of his nostrils, and in particular, the mouth. Later in his evidence, referring to the plume of froth, Dr. Lumbi said, That is a very significant telltale sign of drowning. Although drowning is such a difficult thing to diagnose, it's almost a diagnosis of exclusion. But when you find these findings, the plume of froth, it's almost, I say these are significant findings of drowning. Graham, what those answers prove is that at the time of trial, Dr. Alumbi understood that the plume of froth was significant evidence that Canal died from drowning. As you and the listeners will see from what I go on to explain, is that the presence of that plume of froth is also of critical importance in assisting to determine the likely time of death of the Singh siblings. Given research that was available at the time of trial, it was understandable that Dr. Alumbi appreciated that the plume was significant to a finding of death by drowning, but not at that stage in determining or assisting to determine the likely time of death. Research undertaken since trial has focused on that plume of froth being a valuable tool in estimating the time of death as well as determining that the death occurred by drowning. To demonstrate, let me again take you to a couple of excerpts from Dr. Alumbi's evidence in, at trial. In answer to a question from Seeker's counsel, in relation to the appearance of the plume of froth, Dr. Alumbi said, Once again, these are Dr. Alumbi's words, but not his voice. I should make it very clear that this also depends on the time the body has been examined. If the body has been examined a number of days later, you cannot pick it up, because this is not going to be sitting there for a long time. If the body has been examined within 24 hours, yes. But in an earlier exchange between Dr. Alumbi and the prosecutor, the following was said. The prosecutor asked, Are you able to place a time of death for each of the three deceased? Answer, certainly not. Prosecutor, are you able to approximate a minimum period that they were dead? Answer, extremely difficult. Clearly it was not recognised by anyone at the time of trial 
that the 24-hour window when the plume of froth might appear, that that plume of froth was a valuable tool in estimating the time of death. Why? The answer is because research at that time had not identified that plume of froth as a significant factor in that regard. Without the benefit of that research that has emerged since trial, Dr. Alumbi was, at the time of trial, correct in taking the matter no further. Even though from his answers, he obviously understood that the plume was likely to be present in classical drowning cases if observed within a 24-hour period. So, further research then emerged in the years following Max Seeker's trial, and that was recognised by Professor DeFlow in both his expert reports. In the original report in March 2019, Professor Duflow referred to a recent study on drowning deaths that was recorded in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine in 2017. That research out of Amsterdam was not available at the time of the Seeker trial, and it focused in on the utilisation of the plume of froth to aid estimating the time of death in drowning cases where the plume appeared. At the time Canal Singh was first seen by the government pathologist Dr Alumbi, plumes of frost were easily observed emanating externally from both his nostrils and his oral cavity, that is his mouth. Based on his viewing the photographs of Canal's body, his autopsy reports and the results of the research reported in 2017, Professor DeFlow concluded in his original report of March 2019 as follows. Jeff, my take on this is Alumbi actually agreed with Professor DeFlow in that a plume of froth would be visible within 24 hours of death, but the matter was not pursued that much at trial. Is that a view you'd agree with? Yes, it is, Graham. And as I said, that statement by Dr. Alumbi, I think is very telling. What it is important to realise is that in deaths by drowning, you don't know necessarily in all cases when the person drowned. But what I understand Dr. Alumbi to be saying and agreeing with Professor DeFlow, as it turns out, is that if that plume of froth is observed externally and is present at the time of that observation, it is unlikely that the death then occurred beyond 24 hours prior to the observation. That's my understanding as I see the evidence as well. Isn't that interesting? Well, it's more than interesting. It changes the entire scenario. It does indeed. Um, and particularly in view of the research papers, which Professor DeFlow refers to and analyzes in his subsequent reports. I can't see how you would interpret the answers given by Dr. Alumbi at the trial in any other way. Agreed. These are Professor DeFlow's words, but not his voice. 
a post-mortem interval of around 12 hours would not be at all unreasonable, and any interval in excess of 24 hours becomes less likely. In other words, 12 hours prior to the examination conducted by Dr. Ulumbi would place death at around 0900 hours on the 22nd of April 2003, and 24 hours prior to the examination would place death at around 2100 hours on the 21st of April 2003. Max Eker had an alibi at those times. Since Professor DeFlo's first report in March of 2019, there has been further research, and that is dealt with by Professor DeFlo in his latest supplementary report. In that report, he refers to a research study entitled Macromorphological Findings in Cases of Death in Water that appeared in the International Journal of Legal Medicine 2021. It's commonly referred to as the Schnepp paper. That investigation involved a large sample of deaths in water, 331 deaths to be precise. Professor DeFlo considered the statistical research conducted by the researchers and their conclusions. For the sake of brevity, I will simply record the principal references to which Professor DeFlo refers from that paper and his resulting conclusion. He states in his supplementary expert opinion the following. Just before we get to that, Jeff, I was of the opinion when you told me about this new material from Professor Duflo, we would have the usual situation where the Crown has one expert witness, the defence have another expert witness, and their views are opposite. But in this case, Dr Alumbi, without putting words in his mouth, he essentially agreed with what Duflo said in a limited sort of way in much as if there was a period longer than 24 hours, you wouldn't see the plume. In effect, you've got two expert witnesses saying the same thing. I was saying that the evidence of the blackened footprints was a game changer in this case, but that could equally apply to this evidence, I believe, Jeff. Graham, you wouldn't be wrong in that assumption. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In fact, I think the evidence with respect to the plume of froth is just compelling in concluding that the time of death alleged by the Crown is simply wrong mm. and that they were forced to select that time of death because Max Seeker had alibis at other times. The telling thing about Dr Alumbi's statements at trial are that he referred to that 24-hour period. I'm sure he appreciated what he was saying is that I could tell it was a drowning death 
because that plume of froth was still there and it wouldn't have been if Canal hadn't drowned in the spa bath, that it was the drowning that caused that plume of froth. And in doing so, he identifies the fact that if his observations of that plume of froth had been outside a period of 24 hours following Canal's drowning, the plume wouldn't have been there. Mm. And that entirely supports what was then said in the 2017 and 2021 medical journals when they reported on the research done in Amsterdam and Germany. Here's Professor DeFlo's supplementary expert opinion. These are his words, but not his voice. The authors further stated that a complete external foam formation was observed only at lay time of less than 24 hours. The authors concluded the longer a corpse laid in water, the less foam was still detected in the airways. We were only able to find a complete external foam formation when lay time was less than 24 hours. This is consistent with findings by Rajan et al. in the Analyst in Amsterdam, the 2017 paper. That is just such compelling evidence. It would seem to me that to dispute that, the Crown might have to maintain that contrary to the research conducted in Europe by two separate bodies of researchers, Kanal Singh is the only individual where complete external foam formation is detected where the lay time, that is the time between death and observation, exceeds 24 hours. To maintain he was killed between, say, 12 midnight on Easter Sunday night and 6 a.m. Monday morning, the Crown would have to establish that the appearance of external plume of froth from nose and mouth would remain for between 37 to 40 hours. That is nearly double the time where the experts say the plume would have disappeared. There is some other evidence, interestingly, that Professor DeFlo also refers to in his supplementary report. You might recall tragic drowning deaths of a mother and two of her children in a Canberra lake on the 4th of November this year. And just so happened, Professor DeFlo recently conducted death investigations in respect of those tragic drownings. The evidence indicated that the mother drove to the lake and entered the water with the children at about 1am on the 4th of November 2022. The mother and one of the children's bodies were recovered and examined by the attending medical practitioner at 9.50am that day, and external frothy fluid and copious white foam was observed around the mouth and nose. That was approximately nine hours following the drowning deaths. The second child was not found until 10.44am on the 6th of November, and no frothy fluid or plume of external foam was identified. Professor DeFlo concluded in his supplementary report as follows. And just for the record, that was some 57 hours the second child 
after they entered the water in between death and location. These are Professor DeFlo's words, but not his voice. Conclusion Based on the comments made in my previous reports and on the additional data presented from the study published since those reports, I remain of the view that Connell's death was likely occurred between 12 to 24 hours prior to Dr. Olumbi's examination of his body at the scene, i.e. between around 2100 hours on the 21st of April 2003 and 0900 hours on the 22nd of April 2003. Converting that into normal time speak, Graham, that puts the likely time of death of the Singh siblings at some time between 9pm on Easter Monday night and 9am on Tuesday morning. That's far removed from the time the Crown alleged at trial the deaths occurred on Easter Sunday night or Easter Monday morning. Graham, in my opinion, no Attorney General acting in good faith could ignore this fresh, compelling evidence and refuse referral of the Seeker case to the Court of Appeal for review. To maintain a position, this constitutes no grounds for referral and rely on the Holzinger case to refuse to give reasons for such a finding and to resist judicial review on that ground in my view, is a complete travesty of justice. The evidence relied upon at trial had to fit the police and prosecution narrative that the deaths occurred after 11pm Easter Sunday night or in the early hours of Monday morning. That time of death is seriously challenged by both the research findings of 2017 and 2019 and Professor DeFlo's conclusions. In addition, it's also supported by what I have identified as exculpatory evidence not called by the prosecutor, by other evidence provided at witnesses at trial of observations they made with respect to goings-on in the vicinity of the Singh House on Monday night, Tuesday morning, and the inference to be drawn from the 34-second phone call made by Max Seeker to Neilma on that Easter Sunday night. It all supports Max Seeker's claim that he was at home and did not go to grocery close on Easter Sunday night and did not kill the Singh siblings. And in addition to the plumes of froth emanating from the nostrils and mouth of Canal, Professor DeFlo also said, the following. These are his words, but not his voice. In common with Dr. Alumbi, I'm of the opinion that the extent of decomposition seen in the three cases is entirely consistent with the post-mortem interval of a few hours prior to Dr. Alumbi's examination at the scene. And that is supportive of a post-mortem interval of 12 to 24 hours prior to Dr. Alumbi observing the external plume of froth emanating from the nostrils and mouth of Canal Singh. Graham, I've written to the Attorney-General, forwarding a copy of Professor DeFlo's supplementary expert opinion and again requested urgent referral of this matter to the Court of Appeal. 
I will certainly advise you and your listeners of any reply. I can hardly wait. Stay tuned. Given the curt dismissal of Professor DeFlo's original 24-page report of March 19 as constituting no grounds for referral, listeners now might have a better understanding of my earlier expressed concerns that the delay in notifying the decision not to refer may have been the Attorney-General awaiting a decision from the Court of Appeal in Holzinger in the hope that if the decision favoured the Crown, it would then permit the Attorney to, one, refuse to refer, two, provide no reasons, and three, resist any application for judicial review should the Court of Appeal find that judicial review was not available. And, of course, they did. The overseas studies and Professor Duflo's expert reports are fresh and compelling evidence, raising serious doubts as to the actual time of deaths of the Singh siblings. That evidence was not available at the time of trial and requires review by the Court of Appeal. Any competent Attorney General acting in good faith would immediately refer that the seeker matter to the Court of Appeal in the interests of justice and in the interests of avoiding wrongful conviction. Not to do so makes a mockery of the justice system in Queensland. Graham, just to go on to one other matter, and you may be wondering why I've included evidence of the grip marks along with the new evidence relating to drowning in this episode. I did so for two reasons. It involved Dr. Alumbi's findings at post-mortem, and it seemed to me that the grip marks were inconsistent with there being only one killer and further corroborates the evidence that Max Seeker was not the killer. Let me briefly return to the evidence given by Dr. Alumbi in relation to those grip-mark bruising of both Neilma's upper arms. Dr. Alumbi says they likely occurred at the time of death. One might recall that there were also clumps of Neilma's hair found in more than one place in the house. Now, if Dr. Alumbi was correct and the grip bruising he observed on Neilma's upper arms and his conclusion that that occurred at the time of death. Maybe somebody could please enlighten me as to how a killer restrains the victim, causing bruising to both arms, and strangles Neilma at the same time. Might be a touch difficult, and one might think if Canal and City were sleeping, that sort of encounter between the killers and Neilma might have disturbed them from their sleep. In my view, it makes sense in relation to one concluding that there might have been more than one killer. And I'll leave you and your listeners with those conclusions. I couldn't agree more, Jeff. I recall when I was broadcasting previous episodes and I mentioned the bruising I just couldn't deal with the fact that she had bruising on both arms and yet Maxika supposedly strangled her at the same time. I, I was trying to imagine how that happened. 
And for those clumps of hair and something that you didn't mention, but I think is significant, is that they were clumps of hair, including the roots of her hair. Now, you can't tell me that would not have hurt. And she would have been yelling like a banshee. And yet Canal allegedly slept through it. Graham, that's a great observation. You know, I agree with you. And it, it also aligns with some of the observations that were made by neighbours in relation to the Monday night, Tuesday morning, remember? Exactly. Uh, there was evidence from one woman of hearing horrendous blood-curdling screams on that night. I well, agree. She was either having a, an horrendous dream, and I don't believe that was the case. I believe that she probably was hearing, unfortunately, the ending of Neilma's life. You look at the evidence police gathered on the Monday night. Grass Tree Close was very busy that Monday night, yet apparently it was all over by then by at least 12 hours. And, of course, as I've said, and as you agree, they had to have that time of death as Sunday night, Monday morning, because that's the only time Max Seeker had available. Any other time he had an alibi. He did. He did. And the other interesting, and we've made this observation as well, the stark comparison of the quiet of the Sunday night, Monday morning, compared to the observations of the Monday night, Tuesday morning, uh, is compelling. Exactly. I can see the Attorney General now desperately racing around looking for a reason to not refer this to the Court of Appeal, Jeff. Oh, wait, doesn't need a reason. Unfortunately, that is apparently the law in Queensland as it presently stands. Right. All right, Jeff. You know, I hope that is of great interest to well, I know it's of interest to you, and I hope it's of interest to your listeners. It will explain to a large degree to your listeners why I have provided my services over so many years to this matter. The evidence that I obtained from Professor DeFlo not only cemented the views that I thought the trial was a substantial miscarriage of justice, but it cemented in my mind the likelihood that Max Seeker indeed did not kill these three siblings. Which is a very disturbing place to be for a whole range of reasons. There's so much to unpack in DeFlo's statement. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's not easy, but as I keep saying, it to me is compelling. And of course, we've still got some podcasts to go. The next episode, I'm intending to deal with the blackened footprints and how those blackened footprints, in my view, tie in with legal issues relating to the substantial miscarriage of justice. But we've still got the spa bath and the uh, garden fork, of course, to comment on. And in all seriousness, I promise listeners I will deal with what evidence there was that might inculcate uh, Max Seeker in these murders. That's going to be a short episode, that one, then, Jeff. I think it'll be very short, Graham. Mm. All right, Jeff, thank you very much, and we'll talk again. Oh, by the way, this will be our last episode before Christmas. Yes. And we'll talk again in the new year. That's great, Graham. Look forward to it. Thanks again for your assistance. Thanks, Jeff. See you now. Before I sign off, I'd just like to add to Jeff Johnson's comments. The issues with the evidence Jeff Johnson and I are discussing seems to be never-ending and ever-increasing. 
Sometimes appeals in murder cases focus on a single issue. In this case, if it ever gets to the Court of Appeal, I predict the appeal will focus on numerous issues. I've said this before, and whilst Jeff Johnson is reluctant to comment on it, I do not have a problem saying it. Queensland Police and the Queensland Government will do whatever needs to be done to prevent this case from ever getting to the Court of Appeal. I hope I'm proved wrong. I don't expect to be. At some point, we are going to need to address the elephant in the room. Now is not the correct time. Perhaps the best time will be in the episode where Jeff discusses the evidence that still points to Max Seeker being the killer. You heard me flippantly say that that will be a short episode. Actually, I was not joking. It will be a short episode. Just to remind you, Jeff Johnson came into this case to determine whether there had been a miscarriage of justice. That was his only goal. To review the case and determine whether, in his professional opinion, there had been a miscarriage of justice. He is firmly of the opinion there was. He goes further and states that in his opinion, the evidence shows Max Seeker likely did not murder the children. I came into this case to do a podcast. To do that, I had to understand the evidence. No different, really, to teaching a class, writing a book, etc. Preparation is the key. I was kindly provided with the full brief of evidence. What I found whilst researching the case simply stunned me and continues to stun me to this day. I have gone from, he did it, no question, to maybe he did it, but there is a problem with the evidence, to it is most unlikely he committed the murders, and I am confident of that because of the evidence. I do not have any skin in the game. I am simply the messenger. And the message I have is not palatable to anyone except the Seeker family. And the elephant? Either Jeff Johnson and I are right about there being a miscarriage of justice and the facts and the evidence not fitting Max Seeker as a murderer, or the QPS and the DPP are right. We cannot all be right. And to be clear, the QPS and the DPP have the justice system on their side. Max Seeker was, after all, convicted of the murders and I truly know the difficulty of overturning a murder conviction. Ask me about the Holland case sometime. If we are right, that makes the QPS wrong. And I can assure you, the Queensland Police will never acknowledge they got it wrong. Ever. Ask me about the Holland case sometime. The Queensland Police position will always be the Singh murders occurred on the Sunday night or early Monday morning. And if the Queensland Police are right, we are wrong. That's fine. I look forward to having the errors we have made in reviewing the evidence pointed out to me. You have been with me on this journey over 26 episodes. I have laid out the facts of the case as I found them. 
And in the last four episodes, Jeff Johnson has laid out the evidence, as he found it, from a legal viewpoint, with more to come. And it happens that what I found aligns with what Jeff Johnson found. Our examination of the evidence has not been frequently punctuated by the phrase, that's a distraction. Please join us next time for Game Changer, the story of the footprint evidence. As you know, I covered this evidence in episode 17. Jeff Johnson addresses the evidence from a legal viewpoint with the significant legal implications of what he has found. The evidence that initially looked like a miracle occurred on Grass Tree Close, but turned out to be anything but that. As you heard, this was our last episode, with the festive season fast approaching. Season's greetings to you all, and I appreciate and thank you for your support over the more than 16 months of this podcast. We will be back in 2023. Please join us then. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does raise the awareness of the podcast and helps others to find the story. If you like the podcast, please tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This episode, along with the previous four episodes dealing with legal issues, were written by Jeff Johnson. And a big thank you to the various family and friends who freely give their time to read out segments of the evidence for me. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music, Before I Go, by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>